And then my grandmother was like, every time an old person dies, the whole library goes with them. Print friends, and welcome to the 74th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperline.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can sign up at tiers that start at a dollar a month, and you help keep Tim and I in a job, and uh, great print chats in the ears of your fellow printmaking fans. There's also thank yous like stickers and totes, and if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, check out that link in the show notes. And also, if you're not interested in that because life is tough and times are weird, just enjoy the show. And print friends, if Patreon's not your thing, but you still want to support the show, we have merch for you. We've actually just uploaded a new design with our beloved slogan, Shun the Non-Believers, by popular demand. It's beautiful, it's dark, it's moody. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know those products don't use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Alex Carmona, whose imagery inspired by motorcycles and automobiles led him to a collaboration with Fender, which resulted in the release of the very first hand-carved woodcut Telecaster. Alex's favorite products are Speedball Professional Relief Inks and Fabric Inks, which he finds to be the most consistent, easy to use, and easy cleanup on the market today. So, if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel, learn from great artists like Alex, and there's a link in the show notes to show you just how to do that. My guest this week is Danny Gonzalez. This is one of our bi-monthly bilingual episodes in collaboration with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano, and it is a perfect way to begin 2020. Enjoy this episode in which I chat with Danny about Akira Kurosawa films playing a role in his aesthetic, being influenced by the LA music scene, visiting his grandparents in rural Mexico, and the realities of dealing with the year that was 2020, and the joy to be found in a tomato plant. And if you're a Spanish-speaking print friend, head on over to Ronaldo's chat with Danny, also in the same feed. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to enjoy yourself with Danny Gonzalez. Hi Danny, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I feel like I I know your work, you know, just as these these really beautiful narrative, you know, sometimes illustrated relief prints. Um, And I know that you're based in L.A. and that you've spent a lot of time, um, you know, sort of splitting your time, at least in childhood, between like Mexico and the States. 
But for people out there listening, would you mind giving yourself a little brief introduction about who you are and where you are currently and how uh-huh. it is you would describe what you do with yourself? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try my best. So my name is uh, Daniel Gonzalez. I go by Danny. But yeah, my childhood was, was shared between Los Angeles, uh, in particular Boyle Heights, and uh, my, my parents' hometown of Teul, Zacatecas. And it's a very small rural community uh, in the high plateau, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I had this really interesting childhood where I would, I would go away and spend summers in this community, and then I'd come, come back and tell all my friends at school these crazy adventures I would have, like, you know, basically where many animals can kill you, where mm-hmm. you have to go milk the cow if you want to eat breakfast and mill the corn by hand, and everything is, like, really, like, it's just uh, it's just a different way of living, you know? You you, you kind of have to go, go to the chicken coop to get eggs, you know, and... Um, you really have to work, and then you come home, come back, and then you share this with your friends, and they look at you like, "Oh, you're crazy!" And <laughs> try to tell them, like, "No, I really did ride a horse. <laughs> I really did milk a cow, or tried to milk a cow. I really did kill a rattlesnake." <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots of them, you know. Oh my so, gosh. so it really had an impact on, on, on growing up because I had a really strong sense of where my family comes from and I recognize that as being uh, something uh, a very big privilege you know to have that strong connection to family to to place to where I'm from to my roots Um, and then uh, I started getting into printmaking when I started uh, going to California College of Arts and Crafts it was called California College of Arts and Crafts when I was going to school, so now it's California College of the Arts, but they have uh, a really great printmaking program, and I got introduced to printmaking by uh, Professor Nance O'Banion. She gave an introduction, amazing artist as well. And uh, from there, I I just started, I I got really curious because my my original course of study was going to be graphic design, and while people were rushing to take those, you know, get-rich-quick internet web web design classes mm-hmm. this is during the first tech boom in the late 90s i was going into like print design and printmaking and i remember a typography teacher uh taking us to center for the book and just being so amazed by the by the vandercook presses and really curious and unfortunately i wasn't able to to continue my studies there uh housing was really difficult to come by so i started volunteering at center for the book and at the mission cultural center so I, my first real uh, intensive like uh, introduction to to printmaking to early printmaking was Juan Fuentes over at Mission Grafica, and I used just I I just used to bug the heck out of everybody. I used to go in and ask a lot of questions. I made a lot of mistakes, um, but I produced my first editions at, at the Mission Cultural Center with Juan Fuentes. I, I produced my first silk screen there, my first uh, you know lino cut edition signed and numbered, and I used to show in little cafes. And now uh, I've come back from, well, many years ago. I spent five years in the Bay Area, and then I came back to Los Angeles. And I made a commitment to printmaking once I bought a press that weighs half a ton. I think there's no no going back. Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. So now I'm based out of Los Angeles. I continue to visit family in Mexico. Um, I still have family there. 
And I think my work is a lot about that space in between, right? And, you know, the things that happen, it's about my experience. But also, I'm not unique in that experience. I feel like my my work kind of speaks to a whole generation, a whole group of people that are able to kind of travel between these two spaces and then have these stories and these narratives. And I do have a lot of sensitivity towards nature, you know, and I find I look for that here. In, in Los Angeles, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorite spaces to visit is the is the LA River, and uh, I grew up next to the river, so I felt like that was kind of like this really secret place where, you know, it's just different, and and and, and some of that wildlife that that you find in Mexico exists there, you know, mm. and it's like this space, this space that really is really special, right? Because it's kind of been, you know, it's 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 been there forever. And uh, it has a lot of stories, you know. So I, I just uh, that's 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 where I'm. That's kind of like where I've been at now. And now with COVID, I've you know, I've had to kind of bunker down and 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 make adjustments and make do with you know a smaller a smaller studio setup and <laughs> and more limited uh, space. And uh, but you know, st- still 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 working and still mm-hmm. grateful for for all the the, the work coming my way. And, yeah. Uh, for being able to still to produce. I would want to talk maybe a little bit more about the way that you described your childhood. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. it's so unusual and kind of has, you know, a bit of almost a romance to it. You know, this idea of, of the, <laughs> of the Los Angeles, like city kid, and then like the country, like the country boy too, you know, and getting to sort of live both roles and wear both hats and, ride horses and kill rattlesnakes for a few months out of the year and then go live in LA for the rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, for, for sure you, you, you pick up a whole different set of skill sets really. Like, I mean, I remember like, you know, my grandparents still had old style cooking kitchens. It's kind of like going back in time, like, going to 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 where my my grandparents lived and where they had there it's a it's a farming community and then my my grandparents live in the outskirts of that mm. so they lived in like these plots of land where they they planted corn and raised cattle both sides of my family my dad and my mom and we would go stay with them and and it wasn't kind of like oh we're gonna go and stay and you, you have a room and you have a sink and you have a toilet and you have it's like no you, you want to you want to wash your hand. You want to take a shower. You have to go to the river and like carry water. You want to you want to cook a meal. You have to start a fire in the you know in the kitchen and and grind corn and 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 help. You know you really have to be involved. So the mentality like for us is kind of like we're part of a team. You're not just an like this person. This 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 person just coming in to visit and you're kind of like pampered. It's like oh you want to stay here. Well you have to carry water chop wood and, and do you know do these things so and for me it wasn't like necessarily wrong i think telling it people imagine a romance but living it it strips the romance away out of it so that you know you meet a lot of people later on in college that are like oh i just want to run away and live live this idyllic life and in, in the this this pastoral uh, uh myth you know out in the country it's like no you don't Right. You don't want to do that. Like you're lucky that you're you got air conditioning and and that <laughs> you know you sleep. You know, I mean, but it's a trade off, right? Like we we give up we give up that 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 connection to to a lot of things to family 
to even to your food, you know, to what you're bringing in, into right. into your into your body, like you 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 give that up for like these comforts of living in the suburban place, but also you become exposed to like a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people. It's it's a trade off for sure. And my parents made a big sacrifice in coming here, and and uh, starting a family and severing that, and mm. for them to be able to return is a very big privilege that a lot of people yearn for. Literally dying for, yeah. you know, right now. So I'm always conscious. I'm always conscious. And I always say that, that it's a privilege for me to be able to commute those two spaces. And I think I'm charged. I feel like a calling, that it's a calling to kind of like tell not just the, my stories, but the stories that are around me and, and put them down on paper. Right. So so, so there's definitely that, that drive, right? It's mm-hmm. always in the back of my head that I got to put that down somehow somewhere and for me it was printmaking for other people it's writing for other people it's it's uh, another medium but for me it was printmaking I think that's that really kind of speaks nicely to one of the questions that I had about your work which is that it has this sense of being a traditional aesthetic but it also feels completely contemporary in its content and even sort of you know the use of composition but it's it's very clearly has roots to that traditional you know, the quote, quote unquote, like the traditional relief Mexican printmaking look. Was this something that you were exposed to as spending summers in Mexico, that that style? Or was it something that you were just drawn to kind of just generally out in the culture? How did you come to it? When I, when I started doing uh, making prints, uh, it, it, they were very crude and they were very like, uh, you know, I was trying I was trying different uh different ways of, of putting the image like on, onto onto linoleum right um and then over time uh in particular like Juan Fuentes he started showing me like the work of Leopoldo Mendes of uh of Beltran Mora Elizabeth Catlett you mm-hmm. know um and it just started I, I saw it and it was just like for me it was amazing but and it's a great way of telling a story so not necessarily during my youth, well, during during that, that that my formative part of my of, of, of stage in my life of when I was trying to uh, put down like a a style, I started looking at it and I felt that what was missing is kind of like, wow, this is a great vehicle to tell my story or that that you know so so that when I I, I started creating these prints and I would show them in Mexico, people were drawn to them because they look very much like that style from the Taller de Grafica Popular. And they were drawn to it, and they thought, people would think at first glance, like, oh, <clears throat> here's another artist that kind of, like, makes images like these guys, and it's probably another Pancho Villa or another mm-hmm. Zapata portrait. And they take a closer look, and no, it's actually a city, or no, it's actually not not that uh, the expected, right? It's kind of like, I'm telling a different story, and it's telling it from my point of view, and my compositions are very influenced by by film. I love films. Mm. I love movies. I I love looking at. I, for me, like I grew up uh, watching this program here um, called Samurai Theater on Saturday <laughs> mornings, and they would show like these these kung fu movies. But I remember I saw I saw a black and white samurai movie, and I think it was Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. It was an Akira Kurosawa movie. And from then on, it's just like I, I searched him out more and more and more. And then just looking at that, at the way that he framed his shots and looking at the way that he built the story, the, the how he just captured like kind of like this 
an easy stillness and then he would record something moving like the grass so for me in my work like the sky is always like turbulent or like i try to put that in my own work like rather than the sky being a flat plane i want you to see the santa ana winds maybe blowing mm. through i want to see to see the grass blowing over the the la river or over the hills like i want you to kind of get it that sense of movement just kind of also like the way like van gogh does starry night where the sky is like just swirling i want to get that into into the image you know rather than have it something static i want you to i want i wanted to get it to move so one of the things i looked at was was very much uh movies and in particular you know akira kurosawa for sure is one of one of the guys that i look to and uh, you know of course gabriel figueroa you know as well like uh that that whole black and white movies from that uh, epoca de oro cine de oro epoca de oro is very much influences my work as well what's interesting is hearing you say that I, i can't help but think about how the fact that a lot of the you know classic 60s 70s westerns with you know clint eastwood the good the bad and the ugly some of those are almost shot for shot refilming of kurosawa films and some of yeah. those of course you know take place in the Mexican desert or in the borderland. So I just, I wonder if there's something about like the drama of the landscape or just that the stories of people kind of out on their own, trying to, trying to make it that there's just like, maybe like a, a natural energetic or emotional sort of connection between the drama of that kind of storytelling and the drama of the beauty of the landscape in that part of the world. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then so when you were, you know, growing up and you were like in L.A., obviously, which is super vibrant, known for the arts, all of that. But what about like when you're in this countryside? Was there a, a sense of art? Was there music around or was it really just, you know, again, this might be my um, never having lived it. So I can still have some romance about it point of view. But was that something like visual culture was it was it present or was it really just more about like look i don't have time for that i'm i'm grinding the corn right now <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i think i think as as uh, as human beings we tend to look back our 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 hindsight softens the rough curves of mm. the lived experience right so we live it and then we forget like how uncomfortable and how rough it was and then we think back to it And some of those edges are lost. So I think naturally, like some of that kind of like sneaks back into the into my work. But, you know, as far as like a L.A. for me, man, mu music, music for me is like, you know, always it was always around me. It was I, you know, I sought it out. I seek it out still, you know, <laughs> online now. But for me, it was just kind of like air. I needed around me. And um, I, I respect it so much that I'm not going to attempt to make music myself <laughs> because it would just be mediocre. I Actually, I'm going to share something. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> When I was very young, I tried. I tried. I, 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 um, I got hooked into taking French horn lessons oh, gosh. <laughs> when I was a kid at the Mohites Heights Neighborhood School. And um, uh, I got a chance to, uh, to meet Tito Puente. Oh and with my brothers one day, and and he he talked to us. We were we were cute young kids, and he came yeah. over and he says, he tells us, uh, "Hey, you kids, uh, you play any instruments?" You know, 
and my little brothers ratted me out. They're like, oh, he does, he does. And he asked me, like, well, what do you play? And I was like, well, you know, I play French horn. And he looked at me with kind of like disdain. He's like, ah, French horn. French horn ain't got no jazz. <laughs> and he, laughed. He, he chuckled and he moved away. And then he killed the dreams of a young French horn player. <laughs> <I> <laughs> and mean... they never went back. <laughs> I mean, but no, but be- yeah, if you're gonna get it killed by someone, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, totally right. Like it has to. It has to, it has to. So, so for me, for for me, the music culture in LA really feeds. It feeds. It feeds my soul, and it's brought me. It's it's brought me a lot. Like it's taking me places, you know. And and I feel very privileged to being able to call. Many of my friends are musicians, mm. and I, I'm just honored by their friendship. And their generosity, because they allow me to come into some amazing experiences, you know, just them. I'm a fly. I'm, I'm able to be a fly on the wall, like as they're you know, having these amazing like performances, you know, and uh, and just kind of like sharing these ideas and putting together like these projects. And I just love it just because you, you get to hear you, you get to you get to see the process, but then you get to hear how they build it. And for me, it just kind of decorates maybe like the narrative that I'm building inside the, my head, right? It pairs the image with some kind of music. So as I'm working, I'll listen to music, you know, not always, you know, my friends, but I, music is a big part of my process, definitely. So again, again, I guess uh, maybe some of that romance does sneak in mm-hmm. as I'm looking back and then yeah. putting down a soundtrack. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I remember looking kind of at the work on your website and it did. Am I remembering that there are some sort of gig poster, something about like Dila yes. de las Muertos, oh, yeah. Morsi, something like that? Oh like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm, so my my um, I, I, I'm a printmaker, and I also uh, I just, I like to call myself a graphic artist or a graphic uh, storyteller. Or, but yeah, my my part of my practice is like you know I I do uh, I do do. Um, uh, I've done gig posters, I, 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 and it's something that I enjoy immensely. And I did have like the privilege to, I, I, you know, I grew up being a big Morrissey fan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's a whole other show. Is like why why is a Chicano kid from Boulder Heights a Morrissey fan? <laughs> to be continued. But anyways, I did get to make that really cool poster, and and there's a lot of storytelling in that poster. If you look at the image, the skeletons are holding. Guy Fox masks, and that's because the date of the concert actually fell on Guy Fox Day, mm. and the theme of the concert was Day of the Dead. So it's a scene from The Wild Ones, and it, it, that night was just amazing. It was right before the election, twenty sixteen, and Maurice says, "These are, you know, you're gonna look back and you're gonna think these are the good old days, you know." Mm. And man, was he right! Oh my gosh, <laughs> how prophetic is that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 and and uh, and you know, so I, I've done that, and then you know, I had a chance to kind of do um, just a crazy opportunity um, to sneak in some some political messaging. They didn't have any background graphics for like the bands in between, so I created some of those. But then also, they needed like a three minute video to to show before the next band showed up. So I told them, could it be anything that I want? I'll do it for free, except I need some creative license. Mm. And it's going to have a political message. I'm sorry. Like, it's just too good of an opportunity. And for you guys, it's too big of a favor. Like, it, it's 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 motion graphics. And um, my friend, another printmaker, Ernesto Yerena, 
I asked permission to use uh, his poster for um, the, the the Dakota Access Pipeline protest. He said, "Yeah, sure." He didn't even ask me like what I was going to use it for. He's like, "Go for it." So we, we set up a, a, a call to action right before the Morrissey show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, uh, because of that, you know, uh, through that project and through that poster and and through you know the generosity of Ernest and also a tribe called Red lending us their song. A, st- uh, a stadium powwow to use as a, a, a soundtrack to that. We, we, we sent out a call to action, and then Morrissey came out. And I don't know if this was his plan all along, but he dedicated the whole show to the protesters at uh, in, in North Dakota. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a crazy time. But yeah, a lot of things kind of overlapped through that poster, and, and beyond that, I think. I started doing other things with my printmaking tools. I started making papel picado, which is like a traditional, like uh, uh, people call it a folk art, but it's an art form in itself. You, you, it's like a paper, tissue paper, punch cuttings. We might've seen them like at cafes or like at parties, like mm-hmm. Mexican themed parties. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole, it's another whole, it's a whole different way also of communicating through color and through pattern and design and it's the same tools that you use for relief printmaking. I sharpened them and I turned them into, into tools to punch these stacks of paper. And mm-hmm. I just felt, I think maybe I felt like stabbing someone and I just decided <laughs> to st- stab these stacks, these paper, because it really did feel like, you know, I mean, more so now, but back then it was just kind of like to be, I, I, I knew what was coming. Like I knew yeah. like, like that, that this, and, and I needed to channel that in a positive way <laughs> you know sorry that sounded really creepy but, no um, no I mean I, I think <laughs> I that if stab someone <laughs> yeah I think that if the 2016 election didn't yeah incite such feelings in you I don't I don't I don't know like I don't know if we have anything in common you know what I mean like, right yeah oh my gosh yeah, so I'm I'm thinking about, you know, listening to you, just not only seeing your work, but just, like, listening to you talk, I'm realizing that, like, you're such a storyteller, like, and, like, even, like, the way that you, you speak about things is in this really beautiful kind of illustrative way, and I was thinking about what you said a little bit earlier about how you just had this drive to tell stories, um, and, you know, either drive to tell the stories of your, your childhood, or obviously other stories as well, and I guess I'm wondering if you know sort of where that comes from. And you said that, you know, other people tell it through music or other people tell it through writing. And why do you think, like, you were sort of drawn to that? And why printmaking, out of all the things, ended up being the vehicle for you to do it? Uh, well, I definitely get it from listening to to my grandparents. Uh, w- when I turned 18, I made it my goal to visit my grandparents while they were still alive once a year and I I wonder like how I did it sometimes because I was very much a starving artist in in the Bay Area going to college but somehow I I always made it I always made it to 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 there and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandmother and listening and and listening to how they speak and how they 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 tell their stories and and that definitely influenced influenced me Um, also listening to my my parents I mean naturally they inherited some of that mm-hmm. but um my mom tells me that that her brother uh used to go to the movies and then since they couldn't all go to the movies because they all couldn't afford it they and the movies is like a sheet and like an old projector 
you know, and, and, you know, probably like a very old movie. He would come back home and he'd tell everybody, he'd describe the movie to everybody and they would listen, kind of like listening to the radio. <laughs> and the way that he described it was so good. It was almost like you were watching it, you know? So there's definitely that in, in my family and how I landed into printmaking. It was really, I w it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't planned. I used to paint. I used to, I, I you know, I, I worked in, I worked on, on, uh, on, on murals. I used to do murals. I used to do easel painting and, uh, I, I used to get, I had access to these tools through like uh, community arts programs. And once I moved into college, you know, materials are expensive. So, and I was always moving. I could, I could never secure like a space in the barrier mm, <laughs> for, for the yeah. life of me. Like it was just nuts. I was going from like sublet to sublet and I had to move a lot. So printmaking didn't require a lot of tools, uh, some ink, rollers, cutting tools, paper, and, and linoleum to cut into and store flat. I could stick it underneath my bed. Yeah. And I can move the presses I would use at uh, admission grafica or I would actually sneak into the studio. I'm going to confess something. I used to sneak <laughs> into the studios at CCAC because it used to be an open campus and the, the, the guard would let, if you had an ID, they would let you in pretty much anywhere. Yeah. And I would, I would tell them like, yeah, I'm going to go make some prints. But I really just went in there to muck things up and, and like may do my own style of learning, which is by doing. Yeah. And I don't think I broke anything. <laughs> I, I was pretty respectful of everything. But I, I think eventually people started noticing that someone was coming in to using the, using the space that they didn't quite know how. But that's how I made my first editions was, was, was getting access to, to these spaces like that. And, and for me, like um, I just continued, you know, I continued, uh, you know, like I continued doing that because the process of printmaking involves so many different things. Like I get to be, you know, I get to be an engineer working with this machine. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get, I, I get, I get to be like a sculptor carving into these spaces and almost like an archaeologist, you know, like you're revealing something as you're like picking at the surface, you're, uh, you're bringing light into like this darkness, you know, I don't like to really like, I, I know some artists like to have a very, a very defined way that the image is going to look and their drawing are super intricate. I like to kind of just make like the gesture. And then as I'm carving, I fill it in. I pull out the form by bringing in that light. Mm -hmm. And that for me is just like, for me, it's just wonderful. Like, cause it's almost like you're shining a light into a dark room and then like the shadows are going to reveal the, the, the object, right? And your job is to kind of like, okay, how much light are you going to pull out? Do you want to cast into that, you know? And uh, for me, it, it was just mentally stimulating, Yeah. you know? Um, and and I, I could never get bored, you know? There was always like something. I had to oil the machine. I had to prep the machine. I had to lay out the ink. I had to carve the So for me, like that was just like it, like, like man, and then and then I can make multiples. That's so cool. And then it's tied into kind of like what I was studying graphic design in a very actually very direct way. Mm -hmm. Printmaking and graphic design, you know, go hand in hand. Yeah. And then printmakers are troublemakers, man. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm a in my own way. <laughs> depends on who you ask. Uh, you know, I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> 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 like I. 
you know, like I, I always want to instigate people to kind of like think beyond themselves, you know, maybe think beyond, you know, think beyond your day to day and, and consider different things. Consider even if it's just a sensibility to like an art or sensibility to like something creative, I, I feel like, okay, I've achieved something through my work. You know, you don't necessarily have to get the story, but I, I really, I just at the end of the day, if I could, if I could instigate like a reaction, Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll count that as a success you know it's reminding me of what you're saying it's this thing that I rarely do on the podcast which is to like quote an artist statement back to them but you wrote on your website something I thought was particularly lovely that I thought I would just read and then maybe ask you to oh. speak about it more <laughs> yeah exactly I'm holding it against you you got it you got yeah, yeah, yeah. it but what you wrote was um, my work records through images these stories and events that have shaped my life but also touched on the allegorical and universal experiences shared by many. Stories that transform space into place and give meaning to our existence. Stories grandmothers tell of guardian angels by bedsides and of devils dancing on rooftops. Stories of hardship when past things seem dark and uncertain. All these narratives are important, and they touch on history, as well as on the impact of politics, ecology, and unrest in our society. I just thought that was such a beautiful way of talking about how we just seem to be telling ourselves the same stories over and over again, you know? And so you're looking at these like sometimes ancient stories or just family stories, but they often are holding the same messages, you know, about being mm -hmm. kind to each other or politicians are corrupt or, you know, Memento mori, like don't forget, like that that live your life as if you were dying because you are, you know, these kinds of big ideas. And I would love just to hear you kind of like maybe talk more about that or the way that you see that the art that you make fits into that kind of task and that narrative because I definitely see that it does. And I think it's just, yeah, a really beautiful way of talking about stories that we tell each other and we tell ourselves. Wow. That's like, that's going to be like, that's a big answer. <laughs> <laughs> we got time. <laughs> take me. Yeah, I got time. I mean, for me, that statement, I was just thinking of like all the stories that my, my family have told me in particular, your grandparents listening to grandparents, you know, telling these crazy stories of like, of the life that they lived, you know, the times that they lived. And then my grandmother was like, every time an old person dies, the whole library goes with them. Mm. <laughs> and there was and, and there's a lot of different and, and I looked into it and there's a lot of different ways of like uh, there's a lot of different quotes that kind of like touch on the same thing right but I don't know where my grandmother got that from but but she shared that with me because I always had an interest in like what she had to say and like the life that she lived and she always thought it was kind of weird but that when she said that I was like that just kind of like put a fire under my butt and said, okay, well, you're listening, but how are you recording this so that it could get passed down, you know, or, or shared? Or how are you recording this so that there's something left behind after the the words and the pe person who, who, who speaks them are gone? And I, my craft isn't wordsmithing. There's a lot of people that do it much better than I do, that I could. So what is it, you know? And, and, and uh, I, I settled. I, I settled on, on printmaking, and um, 
you know, and, and you know, it's just it's just listening, and it's also listening and knowing when to kind of like sit back and just uh, uh, empower people, maybe to tell their own story. Like you don't have to be the guy that you know or the gal that that does it. It's just kind of I know having a kind of like this respect to the knowledge and the, the that's getting given to you, you know, or that you, you and and acknowledging that maybe 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 this is for you to keep for yourself and knowing when it's something that you can share, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe something that you learn and maybe you need to help another, somebody else uh, uh, share it because maybe their experience is, is, is more, you know, more rooted into uh, to a different reality than from what you're seeing, you know, just kind of how you mentioned like the romance of the countryside, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, of course. But it's not. It wasn't always like that. Then the same goes with a lot of other, like a lot of other people, you know. So maybe I'm just wanting. I'm wanting to maybe like show you like the tip of a thread and have you follow it on your own, you know. Or maybe I'm helping that person like find that that tip and maybe having them follow it into, into telling their own story and and shaping their own narrative in whatever the way they can. Maybe it's through visuals or maybe it's through through writing but definitely that's 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 kind of been my, been my goal and, and when i said to write that down i had that in mind you know like what what what, what kind of handed what got handed down to me and it, it was definitely those those stories right mm. yeah right now for me like my 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 you know we're, we're all collectively going through this crazy experience of a pandemic and it's hard to see a way out because it looks so hopeless yeah and for us, I think right now we have to look into the times that our that our ancestors went through. Same, same, same kind of like feelings, but different uh, situation. But 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 they saw their way through it, and they saw their way out. And we're testament to that. We're here, you know. We live beyond that moment, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and yeah, like 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 you know, how do you remind people of that? How do you bring people to to be mindful of that and you know i'm always thinking about that i'm always thinking about the crazy times my my, my grandparents went through yeah. they lived through two revolutions they lived through the revolution of 1910 they lived through the cristero war they lived through they lived through a, a pandemic there too yeah uh they you know and a lot of violence and, and they lived to tell about it yeah, and w world wars and yeah, like oh, world wars, yeah, 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 yeah. world world wars and and, and you know diff different things. So yeah, that's something that I was thinking about as well when the pandemic started, and I was lucky enough to be living in Australia at the time. That overall, Australia had done just in incredibly well, um, and you know, in terms of uh, keeping cases low and supporting people, and so I was, I was you know, I, I was self, I, I felt pretty safe, you know, and it was a lot of uncertainty because of course, mm -hmm. just, we just, nobody knew what was going to happen. Like, how bad is this going to get, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, and I remember sitting at home and thinking about this story that I think my mother speaks French and she was working on translating some letters for a friend that were that friend's mother's letters of her time in Nazi-occupied Paris. And wow. that she would do things like, I don't know if it was move letters or maybe move even like guns across checkpoints. And what she would do is she would hide them 
underneath her lingerie in her suitcase because the young Nazi soldiers were too shy to move her under things to look underneath them. And so she'd be safe, you know, relatively safe moving these things for the resistance across checkpoints if she just, you know, put it under her underwear. And I just remember thinking like, the bravest thing I've ever done in my life is like run a red light in front of a cop. Like, wow. You know what I mean? Like, like, like the, the, there are people who were alive, like in the same time that we were, you know, like just, just two generations before us who were doing these things, like, like risking their lives, moving things across Nazi checkpoints. And I'm just being asked to stay home, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And and you just, it really does put things in perspective in this sense of, it's the most dramatic thing that's happened to most of us, at least on a global, you know, if not necessarily a personal level. And so it feels huge, you know, it feels like this is the biggest thing that's ever happened to anyone. And just a few of those narratives, a few of those good stories from generations past, it really does, yeah, help put things Mm in perspective and you're like, I guess, I guess I can eat cheese doodles and watch Netflix for the good of the people. Like, you know, right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of sort of just storytelling and narration, you've also done illustration for books as well, um, or for stories, like quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping you can speak to that process a little bit and just how you decide what it's going to make a compelling image and how you go about actually making illustrations that that really work well with the text. So I I mean I'm gonna mention like the the I guess the, the largest project that I've kind of worked on mm-hmm. uh, that comes to mind right now and that's it comes to mind because I just I, I just thought, uh, we just had a physically distant meeting uh, with uh, my friend uh, Tim DeRoche. Uh, he wrote a book called The Ballad of Huck and Miguel that takes place in the LA River and it's a retelling of Huckleberry Finn. Mm. And he wanted to have someone create the images that was familiar with that space and familiar with the story and the slant in the the story like was that Jim uh, Jim in, in Huckleberry Finn is black but in the Ballad of Huck and Miguel. Miguel is actually an undocumented person. Mm. He he wanted someone that that could that could kind of like you know build that narrative. And I think the the key for a successful collaboration, because it very much is a collaboration, creating like an images for like a text, is kind of being able to set egos aside and mm. agree that our goal is to tell a good story and not necessarily impose your will on the other. Right. And list, really listen to each other and, and have that be your, your, your goal is to like, you know, really make something uh, uh, well, mm-hmm. make something, you know, make, 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 make a good, uh, make a good story paired with, you know, images that drive that forward. So, he made it, you know, it was pretty conventional. Like we had a meeting, uh, he got a good sense of my work and he got a good sense of uh, my ability. And then I invited him like, look, just make a list of where do you want these breaks to happen? And what do you imagine the image being? Um, give me the manuscript text of what happens before and after, you know, and then we'll look at it. I'll read it. I'll come up with a drawing 
And if it's different from your expectation, we'll talk about it and we'll we'll develop it, and then we'll set it, we'll set it on linoleum. And if there's further edits that could happen, then we could do those digitally. There's very little digital work done to those prints, and um, yeah, I, we I created a body of work. We created a body of work that's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, forty, I think it was like forty five uh, prints. And I editioned those and, uh, and and printed them, and the book the book I mean the book is an amazing amazing book, and uh, yeah I was really proud of, I was really proud of that work. So it's pretty straightforward, but I think that that, that would be the key, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like make you know make that agreement with each other that, you know, the goal of this project is you know not necessarily to see who's you know, just to come together and let's let's tell a good story and let's see what pushes that story forward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I haven't, you know, read the text, but just from the images on your website, they're so evocative of like a, a sense of place and just that, that particular form of childhood adventure, I think. And uh, and hearing oh, that it's that it's yeah that it's the uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn or inspired by our retelling of Huckleberry Finn really yeah makes a lot of sense and and I love that idea of taking that very rural story and placing it in the context of Los Angeles because of course city kids get into trouble and have adventures and you know run into strange characters down by the river as as much if not more so than than country kids for sure yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so just you know in terms of what we were talking about before of the what was the the word in your your artist statement something about dark and uncertain times um yeah (laughs) which we've definitely found ourselves in how have you been responding to 2020? I know that you've been doing some Instagram live sessions, chatting with printmakers, which yeah. has been wonderful. And, you know, I, I don't know if you want to plug that, if you've got more coming or anything, or talk about that, or even just want to talk general about how you find yourself responding to the lockdown or the politics of right now. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it's been, I mean, I'm just trying to like, it's been a roller coaster for sure. Mm. I think uh, uh, 2020 started off being very hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> it was supposed to be the year, you know. Uh, you know, I, I had my my fiance. Well, now my wife. We got married. We had this big wedding plan, um. and we made a lot of plans. And and we everything was like we're we're both very much planners, mm-hmm. and we made lists mm. and budgets. And, 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 you know, and it, it just kind of like March came around and we made her save the date, hoping that by September <laughs> things would be better Right. and just kind of like trying to convince her. We sent those out and, and it, uh, it didn't, didn't think things didn't get, didn't get better. So by June, we realized that we had to like re reassess everything, but it's kind of been the story with, uh, with everything. I had to shut down my, my, uh, my studio and move move my things out um it just didn't become feasible to maintain a studio space yeah. if i can't can't have it that's where i would meet clients that's where i would have print sales and if i can't have anybody come in right now well it's not safe to do yeah then why i can't have the burden of, of paying that extra rent 
So I had to let it go. And, and that was very hard because uh, it's kind of like, I mean, it felt like cutting off an arm. I bet. But then, you know, like we, we, we found a new, a new place to live and I had a garage and I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, for now it's fine. I could, I could put the, I could put the press in there and my, my inks and, and we could put the library inside our, you know, our office, our home office. And so definitely making those adjustments. Uh, the beginning was March was hopeful. April, May, June was very scary. Yeah. Work dried up. I had to call uh, uh, clients and see like, and just have very real conversations and say like, hey, you know, we had this work planned for 2020. I know that economically things aren't going to be great. I need to have that honest conversation so that I could plan something yeah. and, and not be just kind of left, you know, hoping, um, hope. I think Dr. Fauci said this hope is not a good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's right. It's not. So I've been kind of like, I've had to confront the really, and then, you know, like very emotional, like there was like this term running around essential worker. Mm. And I, I was like, Man, I'm not essential. Like even the guy <laughs> at the Seven Elevens essential. I'm like so unessential right now, and I had like you know like a, a, a about with depression and saying like, man, I'm trying to sell these prints out of cotton paper, like on, on you know like mm-hmm. be- you know beautifully made, and people are fighting over toilet paper. Like, yeah. <laughs> like oh what gosh. hope do I have of like you know of, of continuing this? Like maybe I should like give this up and like do something you know. It was very uncertain. And then it's like, oh, my God, I'm trying to marry, you know, marry this person. And like, how am I going to like yeah. move forward, like with our married life and like, you know, finance financially. And and it's, it was, you know, that, that was a little bit of a panic. But then it's just kind of like things that that things that I've forgotten about just started coming through. Like, um, I'm going to share it with the in this podcast. Like, I got the green light to share it. So I'm doing um the branding and the well brand refresh we're updating the brand for the aguilar family oh wonderful. so that's this yeah this is antonio aguilar's the great antonio Don antonio aguilar very much a fixture in our house because his family he's from the same region as my our family mm. so we always felt like antonio aguilar was like an uncle <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's how familiar that's how familiar we my first live music experience was antonio aguilar and his family at the pico rivera sports arena and um, I had put in a proposal in March, and I forgotten about it because I didn't hear about it. I thought, well, they're not going to do it. And then I heard in June, and they said, well, they're still interested, but they want to see samples, they send samples. And now we're we're in the thick of it. We're pushing the work out, and they're you know, uh, uh, we're we're. Uh, I'm very excited to to be doing that, and it's very much influenced. Uh, I'm not going to reveal too much about. Okay. I can't, yeah, but yeah. I will say that it's very much influenced by the uh by my practice as a printmaker Mm. yes (laughs) and by the by 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 uh mexican printmaking so we're using that as a way printmaking as a way to express mexican identity within their brand Mm. you know Mm -hmm. like how how do we how do we communicate that graphically and i proposed this and and they went they're going for it and and it's very i think it's very exciting work i think it's going to really look uh, great and that that kind of like that was like the that was it that was like the the life preserver that I needed and then other things started coming up Tim DeRoche and I are actually working on another book called Tales of Whimsy versus a Woe that's the working title but 
Um, it's a little different. It's not quite printmaking. I'm actually doing pen and ink illustrations for that one, mm. but it's it's going to be like children's poetry, kind of in in, to, in line with Shel Silverstein, kind of like the yeah. silly limericks and silly like rhymes and verses. So we have that to look forward to uh, later, uh, early next year, or, or yeah, early, probably early next year. We'll we'll be putting that out. So so now that that you know that kind of gives me you know makes me feel better mm-hmm. <laughs> but the hopelessness always creeps back in you know mm. like just seeing how people are behaving how people are kind of like um suspicious of like science and suspicious of yeah like all this stuff and you know but you know what i, I do have to say this um it, it's not without reason i'm not saying that it's right mm. but you know, like in my neighborhood, there there was they were sterilizing women at right. at the county hospital in in the up into the seventies. You know, mm-hmm. and without their knowledge, so there's always this distrust because there is a record of this yeah. these horrible things happening. But that's not to mean that that's not to say that you should throw everything out the window. Like vaccines are a proven way of combating disease. It's the science is there. It is completely understandable, though, because it's, you know, you're having people tell you, like, no vaccines are proven. And it's like, well, yeah, like, I once had a doctor tell me that I had to have an operation and that was proven, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it it turns out that this thing was done to me. Like, it's, you can't, I mean, I can't begin to conceive of what that experience would be like. And so therefore, you know, I feel like it's completely understandable that someone would put that in the same camp. You know, because Mm -hmm. it's like it's just what it's just people who are like in authority telling me something about my body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, why would I trust that ever again? Like it's yeah, it's it's an it's an unimaginable legacy that the American healthcare system carries is is some of that among among many others, unfortunately. But yeah, that one is. Yeah, is in there. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like where my headspace has been. Also, like I've been kind of you know, I, I've been gardening a lot because <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just I'm just I'm I'm figuring out ways to stay home, and you know I used to I used, man I used to go out I used to go out so much, I used to go out to the I, I mean I, uh, m- more so than before I met my wife, mm. but but even when you know even even when when. Uh, when we were dating, we used to go out and we, we used to love going out and just hanging out in the city and, and just going out to see gigs, you know, see music gigs and, and, uh, and going, going places to restaurants. And it's been hard. Uh, <laughs> it's been hard staying in. Um, I've adjusted to it. Like I, I, for me, like I'm having a, a great old time watching a tomato plant grow. <laughs> I, I'm wondering like which blossoms are going to turn into into tomatoes and which are just going to fall off. And oh maybe gosh. Epsom salt does work. Like, <laughs> I don't know, crushed eggshells, maybe. maybe. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but, but, but yeah, no, like, so, so I've been, I've been building planters. I've been, I've been tilling soil and, you know, whenever I get stuck, like, uh, with work, I'll just get up and I'm like, man, I'm just gonna go pick at the, at the plants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go smash some aphids or, yeah. I don't know, scare that's, the squirrel away. <laughs> that's so, yeah, that's, just, that's a little different than I imagine, like, the LA music scene. But, <laughs> <laughs> 
but I, I, I just, yeah, I've, I've actually, I think that, you know, adversity, um, discomfort, it is always an option for growth. And yeah, and you can be you don't have to be grateful for the crisis, but you can be grateful for the opportunity to grow. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And so mm-hmm. it's ma- it's forcing all of us to shift gears and change the way we conceive of ourselves and the way we conceive of what our life looks like. And while, you know, no one could ever call the pandemic a good thing, I, I think Anytime we're doing that as people, we're learning and we're growing and we're becoming stronger. And, you know, learning mm-hmm. that, that as you said, like you can, you can have these things happen and sort of fall into these, these dark places and these places of fear. And then, you know, every time you come back out of it, you know, every time you get that gig that you'd applied for that you'd forgotten about, or you find like, okay, I don't have a studio anymore, but it's actually okay to work at home. It's like that trust muscle in your brain to trust yourself gets stronger every time. At least that's been my experience is that mm-hmm. is that when you find yourself in really dark places, you can be and even if you can say to have that little bit of light that's like, I've been here before and I'm still standing. So I'm probably going to do that again, even though it might not feel like that right now. <laughs> right, right. I don't know exactly. Well, I feel like that's like a beautiful place to wrap up with your your new gigs on the horizon and your your tending to your tomato plants and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we sign off entirely, would you please let listeners know where they can find you and follow you and see your work? Uh, sure, you, you can always see uh, what I'm up to on uh, Print Gonzalez. My Instagram handle is Prince Gonzalez, um, and also you can visit my website www.printgonzalez.com. You can see some of my past work, but my Instagram has more of my recent my recent work. Beautiful. Well, I will put links to both of those for sure in the show notes for this. And thank you so much for for sitting down and, and chatting with me and and being willing to chat with Ronaldo here in, in just a moment to, to talk again and so we get to release this podcast in Spanish and English so I really appreciate it and it's just been a delight getting to know you more and getting to know your work more oh thank you thank, well, thank you for having me and thank you for, uh, for, for reaching out well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be Roberta Feoli a Venice based printmaker We talk about non-toxic printmaking, working in a sinking city, traveling for printmaking back when they could do such things, and getting witchy in the studio. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 